All right, welcome into another episode of the Greatest People You've Never Met podcast. Joining me today, uh, Mr. Terry Eagle. This is my first time meeting you, but uh, uh, my girlfriend Tawny Cave set this up for you, and she she speaks very fondly of you. So I'm so happy to to be able to meet you in this settings, and then and uh, just hear a little bit about your story. Well, thank you very much. Connie is a very special young lady. You're, you're very fortunate. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I think she's pretty fortunate too, but we'll we'll go with I'm the lucky one, right? Well, since I don't know you, I just know you're fortunate. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so if you want to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself to everyone listening, who you are, where you're from, what you do, what you did, and we'll go from there. Okay. Well, my name is Terry Eagle. Um, I... I'm a veteran. I have re- retired twice from full-time occupations, once in private industry, once in law enforcement. And after retiring in law enforcement in June of 2017, I decided to become a school teacher at Aztec, which I did for three years. And uh, now that my license has expired, I'm no longer doing that. But I live in Aztec, New Mexico. I've been living here since the mid-90s. Um, I'm one of the original... Licensed and certified concealed carry instructors in the state have been doing that for more than 20 years. Um, and basically, that's what I'm doing right now that and just being retired and doing other things around the house. Yeah, enjoying the good life. Um, so, I first off, thank you for your service, uh, means a ton. Uh, a lot of military in my family as well. So, always appreciative to, to meet those that, that signed up to serve. Um, and then your law enforcement background, I guess that's where I kind of want to start with this because that's where where our connection, I guess, would start. Um, so in law enforcement, what was your title or titles going through that, that world? So I started with the San Juan County Sheriff's Office in Aztec, New Mexico, and I was a patrol deputy where we all start, and eventually I was a detective, and then... Um, in the spring of 2000, there was an assessment for a crime scene tech position. And I assessed and was selected. And I so I, I was still a detective assigned as crime scene tech. And during the summer of 2000, we had a homicide that was uh, quite extensive. The crime lab in Farmington was a Farmington Police <laughs> Department facility. But the sheriff, because I was pretty new in the job, requested the the um, person assigned there to help with some of the investigation, kind of as a mentor capacity. So he came over, we met, we worked on the case, did some work together, and then ultimately in the late summer of 2000, um, I was transferred to the, to the crime lab in Farmington, and I spent uh, the rest of my time basically until I retired working at the crime lab. I was still a detective, First with the sheriff's office, and then when I went to Farmington PD, I was a detective there also, assigned to the crime lab. Very cool. When you got into uh, law enforcement, uh, was there ever any, uh, did you want to become a detective, or uh, was that something that just kind of opened up and then you kind of just slid into that, or how, how did that go? Well, my interest in law enforcement started with my dad. My dad came back from World War II and, and was a deputy in Carson County, uh, Texas. 
So my brother and I grew up on some of his stories, and that was what fueled my interest. So when I had a chance to retire from private industry and make that transition, I decided to go ahead and do that. Having already been in, in the military and having already been through management um, in various capacities in private industry, I really didn't have any aspirations to try to go into management and law enforcement. I already done that. Right. So I decided uh, just to pursue the line of patrol. And then when detective assessments uh, came up, I, I assessed for that and selected. And that just kind of fit me because um, I don't have a problem working alone and I, I don't have a problem working with people. So it was just kind of easy um, for me to fit into that, into that world. When the opportunity to go to the crime lab came, it was even a better fit because there um, I just kind of naturally settled in. Um, working at a crime lab, you have to be very self-motivated. There's so much involved. And if you're not self-motivated, if you, if you don't have the want to, as I used to tell all the students, you're, you're not going to survive. So for me, it was easy. Um, being older was a benefit. The fact that I was uh, much older than most of the people I was working with on patrol and all, um, uh, quite honestly, some of the patrol deputies could have been my children yeah. <laughs> since I'd already retired once. So it was just a natural fit, and it was easy for me just to get there. Once I got there, um, I really didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to, to be able to do that job because it's a job that I enjoyed doing and, and had some fulfillment and uh, just stayed there. Yeah. Uh, real interesting, I guess, for me to learn, uh, about Farmington, obviously, as I've gotten to know Tawny and, and her family and, and go to Farmington a couple times and just the San Juan County in the area, but you would, I'm from a small town in rural Minnesota. And so I don't know if we have a, a crime. My grandpa was a deputy sheriff there for 27 years. And I don't know if we have a crime scene investigator or anything, but is it, was it um, is it kind of rare for a town of Farmington size to have a dedicated crime scene investigator, or is that something that they saw was a a need as the population grew, or how did that how did that kind of come to be? Well, Farmington PD had that position already and had had it for quite a few years. Okay, and then the sheriff's office decided that we needed to do the same thing because um, essentially. At that time, in the sheriff's office, a detective did everything. If they were called to a scene, evidence collection, evidence submission for analysis, interviews, um, search warrants, et cetera, et cetera. So it came a point in time when we realized that the old one ranger, one war mentality was really outdated. We needed to move forward. Sure. So that's what sure. sparked that. And I, I credit Sheriff Davidson at the time because he's the one that instituted that started that position and, and it made a big difference so ultimately there were two of us that were working at the crime lab together and we supported both agencies so for an area this size that was kind of unusual here in new mexico you don't have a lot of facilities like that just because of what's required in addition to my degree in criminal justice i have hundreds of hours of advanced training in areas like crime scene reconstruction bloodstain pattern analysis uh, shooting scene reconstruction and the list goes on and on. So there's quite a quite a lot invested. It's not only in uh, the manpower, but training, the, the money, et cetera. So it's not, not that normal. So here in New Mexico, because we're kind of sparsely populated, if you don't have a facility like we have here, 
uh, a municipality, a city, or whatever will rely on a state police crime scene team to come and help, usually, coming from Albuquerque or Santa Fe, and that can mean hours driving sometimes. So there's a real benefit here. And because of having us here in this facility, suddenly we became <clears throat> essentially a resource for the entire Four Corners area. Over the course of time, there are most agencies in the area I helped in some capacity on investigations. Interesting. Uh, I think it's uh, pretty cool to, and it just kind of goes to show, um, I guess, like just not, I guess, not the advancements, um, but you just don't think of it, I guess, in a small town, right? And then to hear how, yeah, I mean, being from rural Minnesota, I'm sure the same thing, something would have to come from Minneapolis or Rochester, right? And you don't think of how delicate those those hours or minutes are, I suppose, in, in crime scenes. Um, so one of them, I guess, that I, I kind of wanted to touch on because um, Ton had told me and I found out you were actually on a was an episode of Forensic Files. Um, I've actually been on several programs of different cases that I've worked on. Forensic Files is one of them. Yes. OK, because there was the 2000 uh, that you talked about that the murders there um, just kind of talk. I mean, it's pretty publicized. Right. Event. Right. And And I think anytime. Things like that happen in, in especially rural areas, no matter the size. I think it just kind of seems a little bit you just kind of never expect it to happen to you or your area, whatever. Uh, just kind of tell everybody about some of those events and, and what led up and, and how maybe they were different from from other crime scenes that you had, you had been a part of. Well, that case in particular that you're referring to actually occurred in June of 2000. And um, a woman was murdered. Um, the investigation started on a Friday morning. There were people coming in to work in the oil field industry. They were coming in and basically um, saw blessings in a road. And then a driver looked over and saw a foot sticking up above a rock. And right away he knew there was a problem back out. Fortunately, called 911 and then it started. So from that about 8 o'clock Friday morning when the investigation started, um, I worked all day on that scene until that evening. And then the next morning, left about 4 o'clock in the morning to go to Albuquerque for the autopsy uh, at the office of the medical investigator. Got back that evening, and then we had um, a search we did on, on a, a potential suspect's house, which turned out to be our perpetrator. And... Back and forth through the night, uh, working on evidence, and then um, Sunday morning, about 6 o'clock, we actually had an arrest warrant for this individual. So in the space of about 48 hours, we had this individual in custody, and he's currently incarcerated. Um, there were actually two people involved, and the other person was, uh, was um, a key factor because he turned a lot of information to us that helped us be able to navigate that trap, that, that path. But what was unusual about this was that in the aftermath, we started going back looking at some other cases that had not been solved. Um, two other homicide cases, one being a double homicide in Farmington. And as it turns out, this was the perpetrator involved in all of those. So this case that I was involved in was the one that opened the door for us to be able to go back and ultimately charged, arrest, and convicted trial of this individual in the other cases. So he's currently serving a life, life sentences um, in, in uh, state prison here in New Mexico. Originally, he was on death row. 
for the case that I was involved in. Uh, that has since been commuted because we no longer have the death penalty. But what was unusual about that day, it was any other day that we would normally have until the aftermath. And then looking back on it these 20 plus years later, um, he is the only convicted serial killer in San Juan County history. And he's currently on, in prison for four and He's, he's potentially a suspect in some other cases, but we've never been able to uh, prove that. And so basically there's still some, some work to be done. Yeah, that's uh, extremely interesting. Uh, so in finding those other or connecting those other cases, right? I guess I kind of want to ask a choppy question. So you said within 48 hours, you guys were, you had him in custody. You knew what you were doing. I think everybody's pretty familiar with the television program, First 48, right? So, yeah. uh, there's an example. <laughs> right. So I wondered how, I mean, that's obviously a pretty prominent amount of time that you, that you are looking to do something in. Um, but what kind of puts you on the trail or, or what were the clues? I mean, how do you go? I, I, how old were these other cases that that were left open that that you could that you didn't solve before that you were able to because of this murder? One was in 1998. One was in 1996. So the difference being on those previous cases, that was in the days where both agencies, both Farmington Police Department, as well as the San Juan County Sheriff, used to assign a primary detective and they pretty much were responsible for that. In this case that we were involved in, this was, from my experience, because um, this was actually my second homicide case that I had worked. This was a, a, a time frame where everybody that we had in detectives that was available hit the ground running, chasing, following leads. And when we ran out of one lead, look at something else, gather up, regroup, here we go. While I was um, Friday night, I left the scene about eight o'clock that night, came home, had a few hours sleep, got up to go to Albuquerque. Well, our, our detective sergeant and our lead, lead detective on this case were running all night long chasing leads. And we found, we found the person we were looking for eventually um, who was a second suspect. And one thing just led to another. So the, the key difference here versus the others is that rather than one person, we had everybody available was working this leads and going. So it was, it was very much a team effort. And that was, that was the difference. Were they uh, kind of like copycat or what, what was there something specific that kind of put you on the trail to connect these dots or was there just evidence left behind or, or, or what, I mean, what kind of was the hints or the clues there, I guess, digging into your mind a little bit. Well, when the, when the story broke Monday morning in the paper in June of 2000, in the next few days, we started getting bombarded with telephone calls. And there were primarily three of us from the county that were involved. Other people were involved in different capacities, but three of us were involved pretty much from the start. Um, Bob Melton, our detective sergeant, Tyler Tribby, our investigator, and me. So we were getting most of the phone calls. And one phone call in particular that I took from a guy is telling me, he tells me about two years earlier about our perpetrator having, um, they had met at one of the local um, bars with the dancing and whatnot. The guy came in, he was there with his wife. This gentleman was. 
our perpetrator came in. They all went to school together. They knew each other. They were talking, uh, dancing a little bit. And he tells this individual um, the stories about how he had killed a guy up on the bluff south, south, south of Farmington and how he threw the body over a cliff and et cetera, et cetera. Well, none of that information, and there was much more that he told me, but none of that was released in, in the initial press releases back in 1998. And at the time that happened, I was actually on patrol at the time that happened, so I was not involved in that investigation initially. But I went in and talked to our detective sergeant, Bob Melton, and I told him I had just talked to this individual who told me some of these things. And, and Bob says, you know, that wasn't published. So either this person knows someone that was there or this person was there. Would he come in for an interview? <clears throat> Certainly. So I called him and came in for an interview, and that just led the, that just led it. Well, continuing on that, we started getting more calls about the hom double homicide from 1996 in the same fashion. So one thing just led to another, people talking about um, the fact this guy, after committing a homicide, he, he talked. He liked to talk. Um, and then as we went through the cases, one thing we found that was a common denominator that we didn't know going in, we found this in the aftermath, was he drove a little Ford Aspire, and after committing the homicide, he would take the Ford Aspire four-wheeling, as you would a doom buggy, something like that, and, and took this vehicle in places that you couldn't believe. And that's basically how he kind of, I guess, relived or whatever, whatever his thought process was. That's one of the things he would do. So the phone calls coming in from people in the aftermath is what led us to the other two cases. Interesting. Interesting. Um, do you find that in in several of your investigations, not, not to stray away from this one, but it, I mean, I guess I, how, to kind of round about it, but how long did that guy that told you this, I mean, how long ago or how long after the first murders did he, did he say, spew that stuff at the bar to whoever, right? And then I guess, you know, a person withholding that, I mean, how often do you see that, that somebody seems to know, I mean, seems to know when they've held that information for a while. I mean, just to, you know, not to, to oh, put them all together, or group them all together, but watching a lot of the, you know, forensic files, those kind of things, there's always seems to be somebody with that kind of information. I mean, that's got to be very frustrating for for you as a detective to find out, but I mean, how often do you see that or have you seen that in the past? We see it occasionally, but in this case, there was a there was a mitigating factor in this case. This actually this conversation at the bar occurred within days of the homicide. But one of the things that we heard not only from this gentleman, but from other people is, is that our perpetrator talked and talked a lot. He tried to paint a picture that he was like larger than life. Um, told people he was a Navy SEAL. He actually got a bad conduct discharge in boot camp from the Navy. Um, but he talked so much that people said repeatedly, we just, after a while, just blew him off because he just always was just telling stories and we just didn't, didn't listen to him. And that's what we heard that several times. And this individual in particular, he said that. So it wasn't until the story broke about this, this homicide in June of 2000 that this gentleman says, whoa, wait a minute. So then he calls, this was a, this conversation he had with the perpetrator was two years earlier, and calls and says, look, this is what the guy told me. So 
I've, we've, I've seen it in other cases also, but this was simply a case connecting the three cases together where people that knew him, because he talked so much, just basically after a while ignored him. Right. Um, so when you, I mean, this, uh, I mean, that maybe not, but that's probably one of the larger cases you worked on. Right? I mean, like publicity wise, I don't, I don't know what the crime rate is in Farmington or San Juan County. I mean, I've seen some things now. I know that there's some stuff going on, but, um, what, what's that feeling like for you when you solve out some of those crimes? Like for myself, I also coach high school football. And so I've always liked to know what like other people's like euphoric, like maybe that's your euphoric or, or there's something inside, you know, for me as a coach, like, you know, when I'm breaking down film and stuff, like, and I really find something that we can take advantage on, like, right. Like that's kind of like my, oh, hurrah. And then watch everybody put it together. When you're working and building these cases and these scenes back, what's kind of like your hurrah moment or your euphoric feeling or maybe like, yep, I gotcha. It's probably different in every case, but maybe just in this one, where where were you like, oh, for sure we got him? We were actually searching the residence, this individual's bedroom. He had given us consent to search. And the previous day at the scene, I had seen shoe impressions and tire tracks all day, so they were just kind of burned in my memory after looking at them all day the previous day. And when we found the shoes and I saw the, the pattern and we saw blood on the shoes, blood stains, and we knew they were blood stains just by looking at them, which we didn't know whose blood. But when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh. Um, and then when the individual came back, um, he and his mother had actually gone for an interview with our detective sergeant. When they came back to the house, um, we knew his mother because she was a, a court officer at the time, a probation officer. So we all knew her. And the, our perpetrator had a small little uh, scratch on, on one finger. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll illustrate. He actually held his hand up and, and Potter was with me, had his camera, was going to photograph the scratch on his hand. And in the process of getting his camera focused, the, the individual's mother asked me, she said, so Terry, what were you doing today? I said, well, I went to the autopsy and then I came back and now I'm here. And when I said that, this was his reaction. And he started shaking so bad that Tyler couldn't focus his camera. We looked at each other and we knew right then this was our guy. That was the aha moment. We knew, we knew this was him. Um, as far as the aftermath of all this, one thing that I told students, if you don't mind, um, starting in 2001 until I retired, I helped somewhere between 50 and 60 students, somewhere there about some projects of various kinds, which is how I met Pawnee on her senior project. And one of the things that I told all the students was that as investigators, it's not our role to determine guilt or innocence. That's the role of the court. As investigators, it's our role to seek the truth, whatever the truth is. Sometimes the truth means people go to jail. Sometimes they don't go to jail. Right. We seek the truth that we're supposed to do. And when we had that, that moment, it's like we knew. And then when that guilty verdict was read, um, by the jury foreman, um, for me, the scales of justice balance. I know that I did my job as we all did. And at that point I sleep very good that night because the family got closure and justice was served. So that's kind of the, 
cycle for me. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I, I can understand how that, that feeling would kind of take all the stress away, right? Like the relief off your shoulders and help you sleep good at night with it being, I, I find it not, I mean, I guess it is interesting, but like, uh, there was just, unfortunately a murder, not too far from our place. We live in North Scottsdale now. And the mother of this guy that did the murder, she was the same thing. She was, I believe she was either a detective for Phoenix PD or a probation officer, something along those lines as well. How big of a shock to everybody is it when it's somebody that's kind of connected inside the law enforcement community or family? From a community standpoint, I'm sure there are some people that, that look at that saying, wow, what is this all about? But for me individually and for us, you know, it really was a case of you can't control what your children do. You can't control what your relatives do. So if somebody does something and they end up in this situation, it's just, it's just what happened. And so I didn't really think too much about it from that standpoint. Um, it just, this was one of those things. This guy had a long history and, he kind of used his mom as a get-out-of-jail-free card, so to speak. Um, he thought he had he thought he had carte blanche because of that, and so ultimately, whenever um, whenever this guilty verdict was read, he found out that wasn't the case. So it was really kind of um, it was very gratifying from that standpoint that we were able to get that closure uh, for the family and be able to move forward. Absolutely. That's, uh, yeah, I, I can see how that could be a, a get out of jail free card for somebody, uh, in that, in that world. Um, so kind of to move away on it, away from that case, uh, just cause you, you kind of touched on it and I have some other questions for you, but what was, uh, what was your time like working with all those students? I know, I mean, for myself as a, as a coach, that stuff's extremely gratifying and, and to see and and how much do you bring them into their to your world um, and just kind of tell me about that and maybe how you got linked up with that and really how much do they get to see? I've always I've always enjoyed teaching in, in that respect. In fact, I had thought about that in high school, but other things came into play at the time. There was a different world back in. 1970 when I graduated, so a little different world going on. Yeah. Got sidetracked for a few years <laughs> and then moved forward. So I always enjoyed teaching. Um, so when the opportunity first came, the first student, one of the school resource officers called me and said, hey, I've got a student that wants to do um, a forensic um, senior project. Would you help? Well, sure. So that's what started. And then over the course of the 17 years, I had kind of a, a standard introduction that I gave the students when they came in. Um, I told them, I will help you with your project, but I'm not going to do it for you. This is not CSI television. Nobody drives Hummers. One person doesn't do the job by themselves. There's a whole team uh, involved. And much of what we do when we're, when we're talking about after the fact, when we're at the crime lab working on evidence, can be very mundane and boring. If you're out at a scene and you pick up 20 or 30 or 40 beer cans, as an example, those have to be fingerprinted. Well, I can tell you, fingerprinting beer cans is not the most exciting thing to do, but it's, it's part and parcel, and it's so important because in my experience in trial, um, juries like physical evidence. Physical evidence 
something that they can hold on to. It's tangible. It's not that somebody said this or somebody said that, but when you have a fingerprint or a DNA or whatever, that's very important to juries. So for students coming in, I told them that we're going to have some very frank discussions. We're going to, we'll, we'll go through some case reviews to show you what goes on. Um, we'll work on evidence. Uh, and, and anytime you have questions, please, you know, please ask. We actually worked on evidence, and I had students helping me. Tawny was one of them. And one of the things that I, when I worked with the students, I would ask a lot of questions. What do you think about this, or what about that, or, or what if we did this? And I knew that probably the student was not going to get the correct answer, and that's fine. What I did not want to see was, I don't know, I shrug their shoulders and just basically blow it off. What I wanted to see was at least an attempt. And even though they didn't get it right, then we could talk about, well, okay, let's let's talk, let's think about this and then go through the steps. So I used that method with, with, uh, with um, students. And most students responded very well with that. There were a few that um, basically wanted to be told. Um, but Tawny, in particular, was one of the students that stood out because she could think outside the box. She was very good about that. She could she could look at it and she didn't always get the answer right, but she was thinking and she was applying and and so it was really a good experience. And I had that a lot with students over the course of that time frame. Um, there are three female students that stood out. She was one of them, and there was one male student that stood out above all the rest. And uh, fortunately, um, I, I say fortunately because I've had two mothers tell me later that if they hadn't spent the time with you, my, my son or my daughter, whatever, I'm not sure if they'd have gone to college. And it's very gratifying to know that all four of those people graduated college. Mm -hmm. and they moved on. So my motivation to teach was part of it. The other part of it was when we deal with people normally, especially on patrol, it's, it's usually not in a good, good setting. And I had dealt with students in not positive settings. So when I started working with students and then going to forensic programs in the schools, uh, local area schools, the college forensic programs, psychology programs, mock trial programs, whatever, they gave me an opportunity for the students to see a police officer in a different light, for me to see them in a different light. And my motivation was, if only one student out of this class benefits from my time here and maybe helps them turn from where they were going to a better path, then my time was worth it. So that was kind of how I structured myself through the course of that time frame. Yeah, that's good stuff. And I, you answered <clears throat> one of the questions, um, but I was curious if that was kind of part of the driver to get you into education for a little bit there towards the end of your working career or, or obviously another factor, but you answered that. Um, and you said you, you dealt with like probably close to 60 kids or, or somewhere around there doing their senior project, which learning about that is a very cool thing that I don't know if it's just PV that does that, but the schools in Farmington, I think that's, that's a pretty neat thing. Um, what, what was the, you became a forensic investigator in 2000, correct? That's what you said earlier, I believe. And what was that? And you retired in 2017. I just always like to look back and see all the technology changes in all right, all aspects of the world. But in that world, particularly, 
what was some of like the biggest advancements to you in that 17 year jump from the turn of the century to when you retired? Well, the first DNA case here in New Mexico was just a few years before that. So DNA was still relatively new. So through the course of time, the, the advancement in DNA, in DNA um, um, analysis that the state crime lab was a big factor. But some the things that we did here locally, we did field work here locally. And initially, uh, just one instrument in particular, uh, um, a forensic light source, um, was a square box that was kind of heavy and had a had a about a four foot wand on it, and you had to carry it around. You had to have a power source for it, you, you know. Of course, goggles and all that kind of thing, and it cost several thousand dollars. <clears throat> a few years later, we were able to get a complete set, basically like flashlights, interchangeable lenses. Now we went from the standpoint of we got to have power somewhere. To now we can use a flashlight, much more flexible. So things like that started coming into play, and it made it much, much easier to do scene processing over the course of time. Um, we had fuming chambers to fume with, things like that, but some of the procedures got refined. How we were doing things got a little better. and So there were, there were significant advancements, uh, especially in the technology, over that period of time. Yeah, that's, that's always so crazy. There's a... Uh... If, outside of my hometown, there's still a, a cold case and a, a former police chief from surrounding city uh, is still working on it. But just to I mean, that I mean, that's from 1970. You know, all these former police officers and sheriffs that I knew that uh, when my grandpa was alive um, that he worked with, I know a bunch of them were kind of working on it as they retired. Right. And they've taken all the theories and stuff into that. But the advancements in DNA, I think, to me, is just the craziest thing. And like you said, I mean, a couple of years before, uh, you know, 2000 or I mean, DNA is still so relatively new to the crime scene. And I'm sure now, five years after you retired or six years, I'm sure the advancements that they have locally even is just absolutely insane. <clears throat> what how many I mean. The fingerprinting to me is always a wild thing. Um, in your experience, I mean, how? I'm sure obviously it's a good tool, but it just seems like so many factors go into fingerprinting. And especially like, you know, if the, like you said, the beer can sitting outside, whatever. I guess I, I was just curious, like, can you explain to everybody how tedious of a task that truly is and what all goes in to just, I mean, fingerprinting. Cause like you said, this isn't NCS or NCIS or CSI, the show, you know, those where they're just dusting with a little, little brush. So what kind of all goes into that for everybody listening? Well, the brush, the brush is still used and that's a very vital tool, but, but one of the, one of the best methods that I found was actually fuming with um, super glue. The um, the fingerprint when it's when it's transferred um, onto something, if you can fume that, the fumes will actually stick to that. To the, they'll actually stick to that print. So once it sticks to there, it, it makes it essentially a cast. I mean, it's it's pretty permanent. Then you can dust those, photograph them, lift them. You don't lose them. If you just dust initially, find a print and lift it after photographing, pretty much the print is gone. It's now on tape. So fuming is it can be very advantageous as an example there. Papers, um, 
You can use other other type of uh, substances, uh, dyes that you can actually treat them with, and and um, it'll turn different colors, things like that. So there's quite a lot involved, and it is very time consuming. Evidence control is important. If you got you know a number of bags sitting there with beer cans, you want to make sure the same beer can goes back to the same bag, as an example. So evidence control is important. So it all becomes it all becomes a very time consuming process. And that's what I would tell students um, as they came down. And um, I remember one young man in particular came down, and he was all pumped and excited, and you know, talking about um, wanting to go and ride along and this kind of thing. And I said, "Well, you know, you got to be 21 to do that." And I said, "This is not television. This is not what happens. It can be very mundane and boring." And so we got in and started working on some things, and. and uh, he was pretty good that first night. Um, he came back. He was going to come two or three days a week. He came back a couple of days later. He was late, spent a little bit of time, then left. Didn't come back for a couple of days. And finally came back and he says, you know, it's really in what I thought it was going to be. And I said, I tried to tell you, this is not television, right? So a few days later, I called the school resource officer and I said, hey, by the way, your student you asked me about hadn't been back since you know, this period of time, whatever these days were. So the resource officer went to the uh, the um, boys um, teacher that had put him in for them for the uh, project to talk to him, and they called the boy in. And, and every student, Tony had to do the same thing; had to keep a log, days, their hours, what they did, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I had to sign off on that every time. But what the boy had done was filled his logbook in and forged my signature because <laughs> so it didn't go real well. I tell that story for this reason. Over the course of time, one thing I discovered is, is that young women functioned better in this world than young men overall. And I think the reason being is because of that maturity level. Um, because for the boys in particular at that time frame, there's just too much testosterone and adrenaline going on, and they want lights and sirens and whistles and bells. But the young ladies um, were able to focus, pay attention, Spend that 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 time that it took to do whatever we were doing and get it done. So there was a big difference. The one boy that uh, really stood out um, was one was a rare exception, and he stood out because he was able to do the same thing. And he went on to college also. So that's pretty neat. I mean, that's kind of funny. Being a you know, I was a high school boy once too, so I can kind of laugh and chuckle at it. But um, it, me too. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, what What would, like, a, a typical, I mean, is what's the population of San Juan County? I mean, 50,000 people maybe? No, now it's around right at 130,000 now. Okay. Um, in those days, it was under 100,000. Back, in, you know, 20 years ago, it was under 100,000. We didn't go over, we broke 130,000. I think it was 10 years ago or the previous census or maybe two censuses ago was when we broke the 130,000 barrier. So we're, there's only four class A counties in New Mexico. That's 100,000 or more population than we're the fourth county in the state. We're gotcha. very sparsely populated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's extremely desolate part of, of America. I mean, just in my time driving from Phoenix here to up, you know, and 
you get you, you head north in Gallup and you're looking at nothing for a, for a couple hours, right? So I'm waiting. I'm waiting. <laughs> um, but I mean, what what was like an average week as a crime scene investigator? Because I'm sure not everything. I mean, and you said like you know you told the kid like, hey, it's pretty boring. But for you in that role. I mean, did you go out I mean, did you still go on patrol when there wasn't a whole lot going on or were you kind of always looking at stuff or maybe, you know, some cold cases, so to say? What was that kind of what was a weekly a weekly schedule kind of like for you? There was always work to be done in some fashion, evidence processing or whatever going on. Um, so, no, once I got the lab, I didn't go back out on patrol. But um, we, we worked in the lab, whatever evidence we had. I, I got involved um, with the forensic programs, as I mentioned earlier, in the area schools, as well as other classes. So I spent a lot of time in the classroom helping with those things as well, besides the, besides the projects with students. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, there were other, I, I was invited presenter at a number of different um, organizations to do presentations about forensics and crime scene, et cetera. Um, medical conferences and citizens groups and various things like that. So there was always something to be done. Uh, and at any given moment, you know, the phone's going to ring and something's going to happen. So when you had a, when you had a homicide like that, you're, you're going to be tied up, you know, for, you know, a few days generally because you're out processing, you're collecting, you're now it's evidence analysis time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there never was really a boring moment. There was always something that could be done. Right. Um, so was there, I mean, obviously we talked in large about a big case, but was there ever a case that maybe was your favorite to work on or, um, you know, was there some, another one that really stuck out over your time that maybe wasn't as, as large or, or whatever? Part of that, part of that seeking the truth as an investigator the part of that that's so important to me is that for a family, if they've had a loved one that's been killed, murdered, closure is so important. You don't want to have that hanging open. We solved some 20-year-old cold cases. Um, we had one in particular that a cassette tape had been recovered from a kitchen sink at the time and had been dusted initially, but no prints were found on it. So 20 years later, we're going back through this cold case. We have this. We go back and, and do a different method of analysis on it, and we find fingerprints, and we find our bad guy. So things like that are important to get closure because otherwise families just have that big question mark going on. Uh-huh. So that was the case in this one right here that I'm talking about. But there was another one also that was that was very uh, heart-rendering. I um, had a woman that was murdered by her kind of a strange boyfriend, and there's much to it. Um, but in the trial process, I had testified one day when we came to trial and the next day, um, detective on the case called and asked me, he said, the victim's mother would like to go to the scene to see where her daughter was recovered, to see the scene, to basically have a walkthrough. Since you were the one out there did all that, would you take her? And I... I had to stop for a minute and just think. It's like, wow, I never imagined taking a mother out, you know, to show her where I put her daughter in a body bag. Right. Um, so I thought about it for a minute. And I said, well, I will do that on one condition. 
you get a victim's advocate from the district attorney's office to go with us so that if this woman needs emotional support, somebody will be there to help because I don't want to get in that role. Mm-hmm. We go out and we walk through the whole scene and I show her and then we get to where her daughter was and I show her where I, where I put her daughter in the body bag. And this woman falls down on her knees and of course, very emotional. She's crying. She's holding the dirt. She's on her daughter's name, you know, and just, uh, it was a very emotional moment. So we finish and we go back to town. Um, the next day I get dispatched out on, uh, on another case. I'm coming back through town later in the day and I'm thinking, you know what? This is probably about time for the jury to go to, to, go to uh, deliberations. It should be pretty close. I'm going to stop by the courthouse and see if, I, see if I can find anything out. So I pulled in, parked, walked into the courtroom, and there in the hallway was, was the family gathered and they were all hugging and crying and they were all gathered together. And that can be a good sign and a bad sign. It's like, oh, gosh, what is this? So I start walking toward the family, and the mother sees me, and she comes running over to me and throws her arms around my neck, and she's crying. And these big alligator tears are running down my cheek, and she's saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. It took the verdict, it took the jury, basically, a lunchtime to come back with the verdict. So for her and for that family, getting that closure was so important. That's another one of those times when the scales, scales balanced. But I will never, ever forget what those mother's tears felt like going down my cheek. That's, uh, that's an emotion you won't forget. Yeah, that's uh, pretty powerful stuff. There. You did a good job of painting that scene, too. And I think everybody listening can kind of see that in their own head and play that out. So I appreciate that. Um, just as we kind of, I kind of get to winding down here and I'm so appreciative of the time you've given me today. And it's been an absolute pleasure to do this with you. And next time we come to Farmington, we will for sure have to get together and, and go out sometime or something. But, um, just what, what, I mean, I think people are listening to this and, you know, what is the, the murder rate, I guess, in in the San Juan area? I mean, is it a pretty prominent area for murders? And I understand that murders happen everywhere, right? But the the majority of my listeners are, are coming from rural, the Midwest, uh, you know, Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota. And it just, I mean, just don't happen as often. And so to hear your stories and to see hear how many, I mean, is it how many I mean, I guess, how many murder cases do you think you worked in your time as an investigator? That's actually a great question from this standpoint. What I, what I, what I tried to teach people, cadets at the academy, for example, patrol officers during training classes, students during projects, whatever, is that when you get a call for a death investigation, you need to approach that as a death investigation. No preconceived notion. If you go with the idea that it's this kind of case or that kind of case, it's too easy to get the blinders on and you lose you lose track. You may miss evidence or something. So it's a death investigation. And I, and I, I was involved in hundreds of death investigation cases. Put uh, more body bags than I care to think about. How many homicides of that? Um, I don't know. It's all part of the death investigations. But, but there's enough that I hope I never filled another body bag because I filled enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we don't have a lot of a lot of cases here every year. Generally, it's usually in single digits. Um, the most we had in, during my career was in 2007. 
And in realizing, of course, that I was working at the crime lab, so we supported both city and the county, that all runs together for me. And in that particular year there, we were in double digits, and um, that was pretty unusual. We don't normally see that, but it was just a really crazy year. Ironically, ironically, that particular year, with all the notoriety and all the negative publicity you see about firearms and how guns kill people, et cetera, et cetera, now, it's not the guns, the person holding it. Ironically, in that 2007 year, the instrument used most commonly in a homicide was a knife. The day of the event was Thursday evening at 10 o'clock. Not Saturday or Friday night, Thursday at 10 with the knife. That was most of them through that 2007 year. It was just crazy year, crazy. So things can vary. And what I discovered in the course of my career is that whatever a person has at hand, if they choose to commit a crime, is what they're going to use. I've seen people beaten to death and strangled and hung and you know bodies burned and whatever, um, shot, stabbed, whatever, run over, blood force trauma. So it's whatever the person has. That's what they're going to use. Yeah. Has there been um, has there been any cases in your time as the investigator? that are still open or just not able to be solved at all? Or, or I mean, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure nobody bats a thousand, right, in, in that industry. I'm sure there's things that go wrong. But what was, I mean, what was kind of your success rate? There's only one. There's actually uh, two cases that I was involved with in some capacity. One was in the city, one was in the county that are not, not solved yet. Um, in both cases, we pretty well have the perpetrator identified. In one case, we did. I'm sorry. In one case, we have the we have the ID of the perpetrator pretty well. But this person is an illegal immigrant and left the country, so we couldn't get a hold of him, and we haven't found him since. And the other one was one that was just it was just so random, with no witnesses or anything, and we couldn't find any physical evidence to be able to link a suspect to it. It just sits there open because there, there wasn't anything there that we could have without witnesses, without physical evidence, just nothing that we could do to follow up. So out of that out of that 21-year career, um, those two cases are the ones that are still open. Interesting. Yeah, I, I understand the illegal immigrant fleeing the scene and uh, obviously like just a random – murder or whatever however it was done <clears throat> it just seems like uh and maybe it is harder now but um how hard do you think it would be with all the technology cell phone tracing all that kind of stuff i mean not to ask like a morbid question but it's just i feel like in 2023 it has to almost be impossible to get away with something like murder and maybe you have a different opinion i don't know but it just seems with you know, everybody's got at-home cameras. All the businesses have cameras now. I mean, there's literally cameras everywhere. Cell phone tracing, all that stuff comes into play, the GPS in your car. Do you think now is a time where the success rate has to be higher than it's ever been? It could be, but it depends on, depends on where, where the actual incident occurs. You, you described this area very well, being remote. Mm-hmm. And if you get out, if you get out, you know, away from uh, settled areas, it may be a period of time before a body's even found. And so then you lose that, you lose that advantage of time and, and maybe evidence or whatever. So there can be a lot of factors going to play there. 
Um, all things considered, though, you would think it would be better. Um, I know that we used um, the cell phone technology was an important thing. Social media was important. Um, we had a lot of <laughs> a lot of success using social media because people get on there and start talking. Sure. And that's a, that, was a good, that was a good tool to be able to track down and whatnot. So I don't use social media of any kind. I just never have. I don't for that. And that's one of the reasons why I don't. But um, but there's a lot of things now that 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 go into play that weren't into play maybe at the start. Sometimes can make make it um, more opportunity, so to speak, to be able to get that get that flu to be able to follow up. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, as I told the students for all those years, and as I told cadets at the academy and patrol officers, etc., if you don't have the want to. It's not going to get done. Uh-huh. It all comes down to that effort on the individual's part. If you're not committed and you're not dedicated, you don't want to go do that, then it's just not going to happen. And so it's really the individual come, comes down at the end of the day, what they do. And you, you seem like an extremely wise man. And I usually end the podcast or, you know, by asking somebody for some piece of advice to give to the listeners. And I think that yours is that, and I think that applies to every facet of life, right? I mean, I'm always, you know, the harder you work, the better your results will be at anything you do. I, I think it's very proven. But if you were to give one piece of advice to people, maybe it's not that, maybe you have a nugget for somebody, you've seen a lot of things and people go through different things. And that's part of the reason I started this is just to give people insight into different people's lives. But you had just like one little nugget uh, towards success or, or or a good life, what would you tell a young person? My parents, my dad in particular, told my brother and I growing up repeatedly, you will get out of life exactly what you put into life. And that's what I've lived with all these years. If you want to put forth the effort, you can have the success. If you want to moan or grow and cry or whatever and and talk about how unfair things are, then you're going to have that kind of life all through. So I don't think about those things. To me, it's a matter of if I put forth the effort, I'm going to have success accordingly. And that's what's basically uh, led me through life. Well, I appreciate that a ton. That's a, that's, a, that's a good nugget for everybody, especially in today's society to hear and hopefully reiterate into their brain. And I, I thank you so much for taking the time to, to meet with me today and share some of your stories with me. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Oh, I had a great time. I really enjoyed being able to see you and meet with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing you and Tony when you come back up. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make it happen. And thanks to everybody who who listened and joined in and appreciate you all. As always, please continue to like, comment, share, subscribe, unsubscribe, rate five stars, all that fun stuff. Be good, everybody. Mm,